Downing Thomas, and I'm Associate Provost and Dean of International Programs here at the University of Iowa. I want to extend a very warm welcome to all of you, uh, very young uh, and not so young, uh, here to this special edition of World Canvas, held each year to mark the opening of International Education Week. International Education Week is a joint initiative of the U.S. Department of State and the U.S. Department of Education and helps to promote the value of programs that prepare Americans for a global environment and to attract future leaders from abroad to study, learn, and get involved here in the United States. It runs this year from November 12th to the 16th and a number of programs and activities related to international education will be scheduled uh, up to this week and during that week. Our November World Canvas is also the occasion each year at which the president or provost presents the university's International Impact Award to a distinguished individual who has made significant contributions internationally, or in the case of international alumni, who have made an impact abroad in their home countries. The International Impact Award was created in 2010 and was awarded that year to Dick and Mary Jo Stanley of Muscatine for their long-standing leadership in promoting the value of global connections and their generous support of international activities here at the University of Iowa. Last year's award went to Trudy Peterson for her commitment to safeguarding historical and cultural records of peoples and nations. And I'm delighted this year to introduce Provost and Executive Vice President Barry Butler, who will present the award to this year's laureate, Walling Mia Ingle. Barry? Thank you, Downing. It's an honor to join you today to present the University of Iowa's International Impact Award. It's particularly meaningful honor and pleasure to present this year's award to someone who holds such a special place in the life of our university, Professor Emerita Waling Nia Engel. Professor Engel was born and raised in mainland China, earned her degree in English from the National Central University in Nanjing, and relocated with her family to Taiwan in 1949. There, she became literary editor and then a member of the editorial board of a liberal intellectual magazine that promoted democracy and freedom. Later, she taught the first creative writing courses in Chinese at Taipei's two major universities. She had published a novel, several short story collections, and translations of American writers such as Henry James and William Faulkner by the time she met Paul Engel, then director of the Writers' Workshop, who invited her to come to Iowa. Happily, she did come to Iowa, and it was after she earned her MFA from the workshop in 1966 that she famously suggested to Paul that the university should start a program for international writers. Together, they proceeded to envision create, nurture, and lead a world-class literary residency program that today, 45 years later, has brought more than 1,400 writers from more than 140 countries to Iowa City and has made Iowa essentially synonymous with writing across the globe. Walling Engel co-directed the IWP with Paul until his retirement in 1977 and continued as sole director until 1988. Since her formal retirement from the university, she has continued to serve 
as a member of the IWP Advisory Board and to work with what current IWP Director Chris Merrill calls astonishing energy to bring the most talented and distinguished Chinese writers to Iowa City. From the moment she and Paul founded the IWP, Chris writes, quote, barely a day has passed in her life that has not been devoted to the strengthening of world literature and to its understanding with the University of Iowa always at the center of that effort. Like no one else, Walling Engel has truly brought the world to Iowa and Iowa to the world. We thank her for her vision, for the extraordinary voice she has shared with the world through her writing, and most of all, for her tireless efforts on behalf of the global community of writers. It's my great honor to present this year's International Impact Award to Walling Engel. Would you please come forward to accept the award? I came to Iowa City University of Iowa in 1964. Uh, in 1967, so first of all, I want to share the award with Paul Engel. Mm -hmm. We started the international writing program together in 1967. That was during the Iron Curtain period. So it was very difficult to bring a writer from the Iron Curtain countries. And Paul and I would try to everything possible to bring writers from those countries. And I would like to read you just a short poem from the writer uh, from Romania. <clears throat> if life would put me in the position to be a pilot, to throw from a plane bombs over the earth of America, I never will throw, uh, throw uh, a, a bomb, but, it, uh, but uh, a flower over the sweet earth of Iowa. <laughs> and then a writer who, uh, who was in the program, uh, in, uh, an, Anata Moti, who was in the program 74, 75, uh, at that time, writer, the writers of the International Writing Program, they stay here at the university in the International Writing Program for for whole uh, school year. Uh, this writer, uh, Anata Moti, from India, he said, there was no end to the reflections of Iowa, the International Writing Program, of Paul and Hualing Engel who bring writers from all parts of the world to Iowa City and care for them. Something, it's something much like what Hemingway said of Paris. If you are lucky enough to have lived there, then wherever you go for the rest of your life, it always, uh, it stays with you for it is a movable feast. <laughs> Thank you. Okay.
Well, thank you all oh, for coming. As I you... want to say something. <laughs> <laughs> the former president, Sandy Boyd, I, I, it's such a wonderful surprise to see you here. Uh, when I became the director uh, in 1977, uh, it was during President Sandy Boyd's presidency. <laughs> he was the president. He was so supportive of the international writing program. Uh, whatever I asked for on behalf of the program, he would say, yes, pass. <laughs> Special thing. What else could I do? <laughs> <laughs> you could say no. <laughs> no, it was not possible to ever say no to you or to Paul. <laughs> um, I know there are other people in this room who've known Paul, knew Paul for many years, but uh, Susan and I came here in the fall of 1954 and she had been a reporter on the Minneapolis paper and also a writer. She had been uh, one of uh, uh, Wallace Stegner's first fellowship holders at Stanford and Stegner had been in this program. So she wrote to uh, Paul and we hadn't been in Iowa City for more than a few minutes when Paul embraced us. And once he embraced you, you were never able to get out of his clutches again. <laughs> but he was an extraordinary person. And I think particularly about 1965 with Paul and Walling, because um, at that time I was doing what Barry does now. Paul had made a movie, had a movie made in the university about, which was really about the beginnings of the workshop, although he didn't have the writer's program, he, even though he didn't know it. He put in juxtaposition, and you were in one of the scenes, uh, a foreign author with an American author, a poet or a fiction writer. And so then the question came, who was gonna pay for the movie? And he had gone around, as we all did in those days, and got $100 here and $100 from that department. And they didn't wanna pay up, and so finally it felt my lot to get them all together in a meeting over in what we call Seashore Hall now. So I had them all there, and everybody was mad as they could be. And I sat down and I looked at him and I started to laugh. And I said, you know, anybody that can tie this many people up about so little money deserves the money, so the meeting's adjourned. <laughs> <laughs> but also in 1965, uh, uh, I found myself as the interim dean of engineering. And uh, things were kind of tense over there and they hadn't had a faculty gathering for a number of years. And so Susan and I hosted an event in the Union, and the star of the event was Walene. She came and performed and read her poetry in 1965, and she was the head of the evening. So I owe a lot to you. <laughs> uh, well, Walene, uh, take us back. Tell us uh, a little bit about your, the earlier part of your life. Some of the people yeah. here don't know about your earlier life, living on mainland China and then living in Taiwan. Oh, good Tell us a little bit about That's how you got life. here. You, you can take it. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, well, I, I went to, well, I, my father, when I was 11, my father was killed by the communists. So when the communists were taking over China mainland, I just couldn't stay there. So I took my family at 24. I was 24, took my whole family, my mother, my sister, my brother, took them to Taiwan. But then in Taiwan, I immediately joined the liberal magazine, Free China. It's a, uh, it was a, uh, a very outspoken magazine. 
So that just fit me very well. <laughs> uh, and then uh, the Jiang and Sheikh's government uh, at the time was very oppressive. And after the magazine had, had been running for 11 years, in 1960, it was closed down by Jiang Sheikh's government, and four people were arrested. I survived that uh, arrest because my father had been killed by the communists. So that's the, uh, that's the life there. So I stayed there. I didn't know what I could get out. Then Paul Engel went to Taiwan in 1963 to recruit in all of Asia. He traveled all over Asia to, to recruit writers from Asia. He went to Taiwan. I met him at a party, uh, a welcome party for him. Then he said, well, because at the time, I had a few stories translated in English. I don't know who gave this, this translation to me, so he had read me. And he said, oh, he said, I know your name, so uh, I would love to have uh, lunch with you. I said, fine. So at lunch, uh, we talked about uh, writing, about uh, Iowa, and then I came in 1964. So that's how the how I'm here. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. <laughs> uh, so, um, Sandy, let me ask you another question about the way universities and organizations operate. Is charisma, like the charisma that apparently Paul Engel had, is that an important feature in getting things done? Well, he was an enormous pest. <laughs> and it was one way of getting him out of the uh, office. But no, he was an entrepreneur, and he did not ever cry that he didn't, well, he did cry that he didn't have enough money <laughs> constantly, but he went out and got it. So he had a very strong working relationship with the Hill Family Foundation in St. Paul, which is now Northwest um, Foundation. He worked with other people around the country, and then he, nobody in town or Cedar Rapids was safe, and so he would go up and just a little more, I just need a little more, I just need a little more, and so you give a little more, it was like church. And so, but he was an incredible figure. I remember one day he had an event, a bunch of writers had come and it must have been in the late 50s or early 60s and that we were down in the basement of the Union. And he said, this is called the River Room. And the reason it's called the River Room is because it looks like the river went through it. And the river, of course, on occasion did. But he was able to name everybody in that room by uh, just memory, just going around introducing them. So that made a very big hit on anybody that he ever met. He never forgot. Sometimes you wished he had, but... Uh... <laughs> oh, yeah. Pauling, when you came here to be in the writer's workshop in 64, who were some of the other writers? Are there people you remember? Well, uh, Adam is, a, is an odd group of writers. Uh, just four or five or six, one from Afghanistan, one from Ulinoido, I still remember his name, uh, from the Philippines and from Korea, from Japan. We were just an odd group of people. We really were not that young anymore. And we had started maybe publish one book or, not, or two. So uh, really, uh, that's how 
how I started to have the idea. I said, well, there should be a special program for these other people who are from other countries. Uh, they, they were not known here, and they just we were really lost. That, that's how I got this idea. And it was started in the National Writing Program, 1967. So we had just a few, a few writers, just maybe 10 writers. Then it expanded, expanded, and I have to say special thank you to Chris Merrill. We never had 30, over 30 writers. I don't know how you handle them. <laughs> we don't. <laughs> Yeah, well, this is a good time to turn it to you, I think, Chris, to, to tell us what, you know, you came here, what, 10, 12 years ago and took over the International Writing Program and have developed it much further, and we'll talk about that later, but um, you came into this experience with Hualing and the, the sort of the history of Paul Engel. Um, what did you think about the IWP when you first took this on? Well, I came in 2000, and the job was to rebuild the program because it had fallen apart and uh, it, in the late 90s. And from the beginning, Welling was a great ally. And uh, in fact, I think within about two weeks of my arrival, she insisted that we have lunch with Sandy. And uh, I don't know if you remember this, this lunch. And we, we, I, I had met Sandy once, uh, and I understood that he was very important. And we sat down at this lunch, and Welling uh, looked at Sandy. The first thing she said to him was, Sandy, I read that letter you sent out about estate planning. Why don't you give your estate to the IWP? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, in my polite way, I thought, this seems a little forward. And uh, then I, uh, I saw Sandy a, about a week or so later, and I, 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 I mentioned this event. And uh, Sandy said to, said to me two things that I've always kept uh, in mind. He said, uh, well, how do you think that Paul and Walling made this program work mm -hmm. by being so direct? And then he said, and you'll notice how easily I deflected the request. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned two important lessons right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we're very honored to have a good friend of yours here, and I would like to have your friend come up and join us now, who's flown all the way from Hong Kong to join us on this special uh, evening. Yeah, I mean, Paul. Uh, he was uh, also one word. Uh, he, he was uh, in, the, uh, in the international writing program in 1983. And now he is a big shot, a big, big uh, <laughs> editor-in-chief of the leading uh, intellectual magazine in Chinese. He made a special trip coming back to Iowa just for this occasion. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. I know a few words. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. It's a long trip for me to come here from Hong Kong. I have to say a few words. First of all, I must to say Hualing not only belong to Iowa, she also belong to Hong Kong. <laughs> and Hualing is belong to the world. Secondly, Hualing and Engel trip IWP as a home of writers. We 
IWP riders are in a family circle. We many riders call Hualing Ma. I came here because Iowa is my second home. My ma is here. <laughs> Lastly, I want to say Hualing, Hualing is such uh, 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 successful, we all feel very proud. Thanks. <laughs> Mr. Poon, you, you are an alum of the International Writing Program. Yeah. You were here as a writer yeah. Yeah. in 1983. Uh, 1983. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, when had you heard about the International Writing Program? How did you hear about it? Uh, I, at that time, uh, we, I mean, uh, we have uh, some uh, Hong Kong writers uh, have been here, ah. and they, uh, 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 they, uh, we, I, I was told by, uh, by, by them, and they, they, uh, they are very, uh, I mean, a writer's program is very helpful yeah. to, to the writers, yeah. and they learn a lot, uh, especially uh, because they, their space and the writer can uh, exchange uh, its uh, opinion yes uh, it's other mm -hmm. and very open uh, at, at that time I there's a this a first time a Taiwan's writer in uh, yep. uh, uh, writer to join together in 19, nine, uh, 1979 yes first time I mean uh, China mainland writers and China Taiwan's writer yeah. they meet uh, in Iowa really uh, uh, so this uh, uh, Hualien created the chance uh, yes. and uh, 1983 I, I, I remember there's uh, East Germans writer and West Germans writer they are first uh, to meet here and I mean, uh, it's the right, uh, James Ryder is a lady, it's a beautiful lady, and the, right. the, the West, uh, West James Ryder West. is a gentleman. Yeah. And they meet, their, uh, meet here and they fall in love. West they, German writer and an East German uh, yeah. writer. Yeah. 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 They met here they, and they, fell they, in they love here. here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. they, they, and they fell in love. In, in uh -huh. love and, <laughs> and it's very, uh, I'm, uh, oh. Uh, very beautiful story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, that happened in very Iowa in, <laughs> and IWP. Uh -huh. yeah. Very good. Yeah, I remember yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, a lot of that happens in the IWP, huh, Chris? Yeah. <laughs> it, is, it, is, it is the love boat here. Yeah, right. Uh, well, um, Mr. Poon, you are uh, chief editor of uh, an important monthly in Hong Kong yeah. and chairman of the Hong Kong Writers Association. Yes. What does Hua Ling's writing mean to people yeah. from Hong Kong? Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I read uh, all, all Hua Ling's uh, uh, words. And uh, we, we published uh, Hua Ling's uh, novel uh, around uh, in 1980, uh, 1980, 
and there's a and we translate Paul Engel's uh, poem in Chinese, yeah. and we publish uh, Hong Kong too, and uh, she's very uh, her novel very popular yeah. in Hong Kong and China. Uh, I mean, I mean China many in China Taiwan also. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here. And Hualing, anything else you'd like to say while you're uh, here? Oh, I'm overwhelmed with uh, you know, so many people, friends, all of them that are here. I'm really overwhelmed. Uh, I, I didn't expect uh, at my age <laughs> I would have such a big honor. Yeah, really, it, it's such a wonderful surprise. Uh, you, you have been working so hard oh, no, no, many, no. many times. Pleasure. Pleasure. It's an honor for us to have you here. And so I hope everyone will, will um, show you their appreciation with a nice round of applause. So I'm here with Chris Merrill, and we're going to talk just a little bit more now about the, um, the continuation of the International Writing Program since those early years, and uh, we've already had a little taste of that, but you're doing so many things, and as Walling mentioned, uh, this year you have over 30 writers here. Um, the program has grown in these last years. You've uh, uh, been in charge with, I must say, a very small staff working very hard to make this program successful. So, so tell us about the IWP in 2012. Well, what we do now is just building on what Paul and Welling uh, created all those years ago. And I love the story of the, the West German writer meeting the East German writer and falling in love, and the, the Chinese writers from different from Hong Kong and the mainland and Taiwan coming together, because um, that's really what we do, is when we, we say we bring the world to Iowa, we bring writers from lots of different places. Uh, this year, 31 writers from 28 countries, and uh, uh, they have put on something like 125 public events. Yeah. Uh, and as he said, it's with the small staff that we keep all this together. But what they do is they, the writers come here, as they always have, to write, uh, to trade ideas and impressions with one another, to have a chance to engage with a lot of different kinds of audiences. Uh, we had some writers who went out yesterday to, um, uh, to Solstead, to uh, Chuck Peters' farm, and we have a little movie of some of our writers driving a tractor, which is a scary thought. Um, uh, the other day, we had the writers out to the harvest party at the Danes' farm, and uh, another writer there drove, I've just learned today, a golf cart over uh, some bicycles. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, we spend, I, I, I tell you, my email is really interesting. I bet, that, uh, <laughs> I bet it is. Well, in addition to that, um, we've talked very often about the um, cultural diplomacy role that writers can play and programs like this can play. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, how writing, and particularly this kind of writing project, aids in cultural diplomacy. Yeah. Well, cultural diplomacy is, is, a, is a part of that larger uh, idea of public diplomacy, the trading of uh, information and ideas, people-to-people -people exchanges, the sense that when people get together, they find out that they have uh, much more in common than, than divides them. In our program, historically, we have almost always had Israeli and Palestinian writers here at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, they almost 
always argue when they first arrive and almost always are fast friends by the time they leave um, <laughs> because they find out that they share a lot of things. They are divided by uh, profound political differences, but uh, writers discover other kinds, other grounds of, of commonality. And that's what governs a lot of what we do. But I was just thinking when uh, the writers brought together in 1983, I think one of the writers was Wang Anyi, right? The, uh, from the mainland, from Shanghai. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, we had a program there. We, we brought young writers together. We'll be talking about it later today called Life of Discovery. R young American and young uh, Chinese writers. And uh, it turns out that when uh, Wang Anyi was here 20 years ago, she was so impressed by the writer's workshop and uh, by the International Writing Program that she has gone and created um, uh, a similar kind of program in Shanghai. And uh, so I think that what happens in cultural diplomacy at its best, people find good ideas mm -hmm. and then they take them to other places and translate them into their own, into their own surroundings and, uh, uh, and, and then new works get created. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I understand that Paul Engel worked uh, with the State Department, Kennedy administration, and uh, can you tell us anything about that? Well, from the very beginning, uh, Paul understood that this, uh, well, I mean, as Sandy was talking about, knowing where money is, uh, I think <laughs> yeah. he understood that the, there would be money at the State Department yeah. for this kind of cultural exchange, and we've, we've had a, a really terrific relationship with the State Department now for 45 years, and uh, uh, and indeed, a lot of the programs that we do uh, that are a part of the, uh, the fall residency and that then extend beyond come out of ideas generated in Washington. And they are, they are designed to figure out ways to, uh, again, bring writers into some sort of conversation. Mm -hmm. So um, you mentioned East Germany, West Germany. We've talked about um, China and um, Taiwan and, and bringing writers together from countries that weren't always on the best of terms. Uh, right now, you have a writer from, I think, Afghanistan, don't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We've got a, a writer from Afghanistan. Um, we've, uh, we've had a, this fall also a writer from Iraq, actually our first Kurdish writer from ah. Iraq. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, we've also brought writers out to as uh, in, in State Department uh, parlance to places of strategic interest. We brought writers to, uh, to Afghanistan, to Pakistan. Uh, I just traveled to Baghdad last week uh, to see what we might be able to put together to, as we start to normalize our relations with, uh, with Iraq. Um, the exchange of writers, and the, of artists, of musicians, of dancers mm -hmm. at some point will become uh, part of what goes on between our two, yeah. two countries. So is some of the funding, I, I take it, funding is a big element of this relationship with the State Department because it, clearly it's expensive to bring in yeah. more than 30 people for <laughs> yeah. a 10-week residency and to do everything you do here. Yeah, but you know, the writers, so we have 30, 31 writers from 28 countries and about half of them were paid for by the State Department mm -hmm. uh, or embassies. And the other half come from uh, the same sorts of fundraising efforts that, uh, that Paul did, establishing uh, bilateral relationships with cultural ministries around the world, uh, trying to uh, ask people for money. And of course, we had a, an, an, an incredible gift given to us this, uh, this summer, an anonymous gift of, a, of half a million dollars, which uh, uh, that, that uh, Welling has turned into the Paul and Welling Angle Fellowship mm -hmm. ship that will bring us a Chinese writer every year from here into eternity, and uh, mm -hmm. as well as a writer from another part of the world. Wow, that's a that's a yeah. testament. I forgot to say, Mo Yan, the uh, fiction writer of China, 
He just won this year's Nobel Prize for Literature. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and actually, and Moyan is the second IWP writer to win the Nobel Prize in, in six years. Yeah, Orhan, Orhan Pamuk, Pamuk, the Turkish novelist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so um, we're going to be talking throughout this program about various projects that the IWP is involved in, and a little later we'll be talking about Book Wings and about the Whitman Web. So there is a lot going on here. Um, what do you think the public here in Iowa should know about the International Writing Program or anything related to writing that exists here in Iowa around all of us? Well. You know, the funny thing is, when I was thinking about taking this job, uh, I remember I was in contact with a writer in Romania uh, by email, and I said, I'm thinking of taking this job in Iowa. And she wrote back immediately to say, oh, definitely take that job, Iowa. It's where all the writers are. Uh -huh. <laughs> so that, and that's because of what Paul and Welling did. The, the legacy, uh, their legacy is that writers all around the world know that mm -hmm. this is a place where Creativity is honored, where trying to uh, make a poem or a story or a play is something that we, we take really seriously. I, I joke with people that I live in a city that if you tell them you're a poet, they say, oh, wow, that's great. You know, anywhere else in America, you say you're a poet, you feel like, they look at you like, oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry. You know, you know, maybe one day you'll grow up. But uh, so it gives us, we're, we live in a place that's, uh, that is, it's, it's rightfully a UNESCO city of literature because we honor the word. And uh, uh, so when you bring writers together here from around the world, as, as every Friday we have these panel discussions in the library, at the, public, the, the Iowa City Public Library, and, and the writers bring up such interesting ideas yeah. about how they do their work, the things that they're, that they're thinking about. And what we discover is that the problems that writers face before the blank page or the blank screen are pretty similar around the world, and, uh, and, yeah. and we all have interesting strategies for trying to overcome those, mm -hmm. uh, those problems and then and write new work, and we discover along the way that we are involved in a common endeavor. Yeah. Well, you've been a writer uh, at least all of your adult life and continue to write even though you're busy with this program. Uh, what have you learned from these various writers? Is there any particular trick along the way that you learned or, or some sort of focus strategy? I, I've, I've, uh, the one thing that I've learned is that what distinguishes writers is that they, is that they write. They get up every day and write, no matter how they feel, no matter what they uh, do. I remember we had a writer from Georgia some years ago who used to go down the hall of the Iowa House Hotel where the writers stay with a soccer ball at 6.30 in the morning, and he would kick the ball against different writers' <laughs> doors to say, get up, get up, write, you know? Yeah. And he wrote a whole book while he was here. It's a bestseller in Georgia, and it's all about Iowa and about his fellow writers. I, I hate to think how he uh, has portrayed some of them, and I hate to think how he's portrayed me. But, uh, yeah. 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 Oh, well, um, you did mention quickly that we're a UNESCO city of literature. I, it's worth uh, mentioning that, again, I see John Kenyon here, who is uh, heading up that organization now. I know that you played a, a major role in um, preparing all the materials that needed to go to UNESCO to get this city recognized, along with Edinburgh and Melbourne and Dublin and a couple of other cities. Um, what does it mean to be a UNESCO city of literature? Well, first I should say that the idea for us uh, applying to the UNESCO Creative Cities Network came from my associate director, Hugh Ferrer. We were putting together a white paper for uh, 
the provost had then put together, uh, had assembled a, a working group uh, on the writing university. And as we were inventorying our resources, our literary resources, he came across this UNESCO uh, 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 Creative Cities Network. Uh, Hugh Ferrer said to me, you know, I think we fit all the criteria. But the cities in the Creative Cities Network were you know, Edinburgh, they were Berlin, they were Kobe, Japan. Uh, and yeah. So when I, I contacted the headquarters in Paris and said, would you, would you entertain a, a, a dossier from, from Iowa City? And they replied immediately and said, we've been waiting for you huh. to apply. <laughs> because they felt that we really had, we, we were what they viewed as a creative city. And so now we're in a network with about, there are over 30 creative cities. Um, uh, there are six in the literature, Dublin, mm -hmm. uh, Pra uh, mm -hmm. Prague is on the way in, Reykjavik, uh -huh. Reykjavik. Uh, Melbourne, mm -hmm. Edinburgh. And Norwich. And Norwich, England. Mm -hmm. I'm trying right now, in Baghdad last week I was, uh, I met with the Deputy Minister of Culture and we, in that, in the course of that meeting we came up with the idea that Baghdad has such a long and distinguished history as a center of learning in the Middle East that maybe as they start to rebuild the country, they could start working toward uh, creating, uh, uh, applying for the UNESCO Cities of Literature. So, uh, you know, that's, that, that seems almost impossible to imagine until you look at all the writers there and you think, you know, in, in their yeah. own way, that uh, there, there might be some hope there too. Yeah, terrific. Well, stay here, please. And we're going to invite our next guests up as well to join us and talk a little bit more about Chinese literature. I'd like to welcome two of the writers from this year's residency, Lin Chun Ying and Stephanie Ye. If you would please come on up here. And uh, also, Jennifer Feely, please join us as well. Uh, as they approach, I'll read a little bit about our guests. Uh, please, Lynn and Stephanie, come up to join us. <laughs> and uh, so, hi. Uh, Lin Chun Ying is a fiction writer from Taiwan. He's the author of an essay collection and seven short story collections, including The Longest Summer, A Burning Notebook, and The Garden of Mirrors. His novel, The Nostalgia That Dare Not Speak Its Name, received the 2012 Taipei International Book Exhibition Prize. And Lin has worked as a copywriter, newspaper editor, and in television. Welcome. Thank you for coming, Lynn. And Stephanie Ye is a fiction writer from Singapore. Stephanie has been published in journals such as the Quarterly Literary Review Singapore, Mascara Literary, Re Literary Review, and Sci-Fi Short Story Magazine. Her first solo publication is a chapbook titled The Billion Shop. She's worked as a copy editor, arts reporter, and a book critic for The Straits Times. So welcome to both of you. And Jennifer Feely, nice to see you again. You've been on this program before, and good to, to see you. Uh, Jennifer is an assistant professor of modern Chinese literature here at the University of Iowa. So the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is read an excerpt from uh, Hualing's work. I believe Lin will read the excerpt in Chinese, and then Stephanie will read us the same excerpt in English, so we can enjoy a little bit of Hualing's writing. So please, Lin, whenever you're ready. Uh, the title is Di Ni Chue Tian Hai. Tai Yang Sheng Yan Di Yu Yi Gen Tajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajajaj
一次嫌疑的小狮子，大喊大吼：“小鸟，算了吧，就是千年万年，你也休想把我大海填平。”帝女却向大海投下一粒小狮子，哪怕就是百万年、千万年、万万年，一直到世界末日，我也要把你大海填平。东海大笑：“那你就填下去吧，傻鸟儿。”帝女却飞回发鸠山，又衔了一粒小石子，又飞到东海，又把小石子投在海里，直到今天，帝女却还在那儿来回飞着。Thank you. Right. Um. Now I'll read that in English. That was the epilogue of um Huang Nie's novel Mulberry and Peach, and the title is. Princess Bird and the Sea. One day, Nuiwa, daughter of the sun god Yan Ti, set sail to the East Sea in a small boat. There is a storm, and the boat capsizes. Nuiwa drowns, but she refuses to die. She turns into a bird with a blue head, white beak, and red claws. She is called Princess Bird. And goes to live on Ring Dove Mountain. Princess Bird wants to fill in the sea and turn it into solid ground. She flies to the East Sea, then drops a pebble in the water. She flies back and forth, day and night. Each trip, she takes another pebble. The sea roars. Little bird, don't think that you can fill me in. Even if you take thousands and millions of years, Princess Bird drops another pebble into the sea and says, "I will do it if it takes me billions and trillions of years until the end of the world. I will fill you in." The East Sea bursts out laughing. "Go ahead, you silly bird." Princess Bird is flying back and forth between the sea. And the mountain. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Our, our two readers there were Lin Chun Ying and Stephanie Ye. Thank you so much. And, and the writing was by Hua Ling. So I would like to turn now to you, Jennifer.、Uh, you're a specialist in Chinese literature, and, and perhaps you can tell us a little bit about where Hua Ling's writing fits into the Chinese landscape. Sure. I mean, I'd actually like to comment on the book they just read from because I taught this my first year teaching at the University of Iowa, and Hua Ling actually came to my class. I don't know if you remember. This was a long time ago. You came, and my students interviewed you, and. At the end of the term, they all said universally this was their favorite book <laughs> from the semester, and I don't want to embarrass her or her grandchildren. But what they really found very provocative about the book was its bold depiction of female sexuality, which was really shocking to them because books we had read before this were a lot more conservative.、Um, and for those of you who haven't read the book. She does something very clever, which is to portray the fragmentary nature of what's happening with China and Taiwan. She creates a woman protagonist who has multiple personalities,、um, and it, it's a wonderful narrative where she's running away from the INS agent. 
um, and sort of taunting him. And so they were really, really impressed with how she wove in psychoanalytic theory as well as sexuality. And this was really, really shocking to them compared to what they had read before. And it left mm -hmm. such a deep impact on, on my students. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And she's really one of the early um, Taiwanese modernists, which some people don't realize, but um, she was doing this back in the 1960s and 70s. It's yeah. very impressive. And what's the name of the book that we, we heard the Mulberry and Peach. Mulberry and Peach. So that's Great. the name of the two women, the, yeah. the two personalities. Yeah. And it's, it's available in an English translation. Right? Yes. Oh, good. Good, good. Yeah, great. So, um, so you have a good experience, not only personally with Welling, but, but also with uh, her writing. What can you tell us about trends in Chinese literature? Uh, what, what are the most interesting genres to follow these days? Well, I mean, I'd first like to go actually back to her work because we keep on talking about her in the co context of Chinese literature, mm -hmm. but I think we should also talk about her work in the context of American literature. And I don't think there's any reason that American literature only has to be written in English. I mean, we're a university that has a creative writing program in Spanish, mm -hmm. and maybe one day in Chinese, if Pauling, you know, gets up the nerve to, you know, <laughs> to start one. But I think that, I mean, her work is really interesting because it's, in the film that Angie made, she keeps on talking about, I'm an outsider. I'm on the outside of the outside. And a lot of recent trends, actually, in Chinese literary studies are to take works from the outside, from the periphery, and put them back into the center. So not just looking at works from mainland China, but looking at works from people in the diaspora, whether it's written in Chinese by people overseas, or even works written in English as well, that there are multiple constructions of what, it, what can constitute Chinese literature. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important. And I think that the way Hualing describes herself with her tree metaphor is really lovely um, because she talks about her roots being in the mainland, in the trunk is in Taiwan, and the branches and leaves are um, in Iowa. And you'll notice that in that metaphor, there's nothing that is in conflict with one another. She's able to be a Chinese writer, a Taiwanese writer, and an American writer. And as Mr. Pan told us, they also want to embrace her as a Hong Kong writer. Because mm -hmm. when she was publishing, the only place she could publish was Hong Kong. She couldn't publish in the mainland. She couldn't publish in Taiwan, only in Hong Kong. So we can see that she's truly a world writer. Mm -hmm. it's, it's extremely impressive. <laughs> and you've become personal friends. Yeah, I mean, one of the great things about working at University of Iowa is Hualing. I can say that, without a doubt, that she's my favorite thing about Iowa City. So she's truly a living treasure. So we're very lucky to have her. Uh, we heard mention earlier from Walling that Moyan had won uh, the Nobel Prize, and Chris mentioned the second IWP writer who's won the Nobel, which is quite amazing, I think. And uh, what, what can you tell us about Moyan? Many of us don't know his writing. Well, in the um, statement that they made, the Nobel Prize Committee, when they said they awarded it to him, they described his work as hallucinatory realism, which I think is just another way of saying magical realism, that he's been influenced a lot by Latin American literature. Um, and I mean, Moyen is really important. He's, sometimes people classify him in the group of root-seeking literature, um, but I think it's much more than that. And for Moyen, if you read his work, sense of place is quite important. He often writes about his hometown of Gaomi in Shandong province. I mean, his language is really wonderful. And I think that comes out mostly in Howard Goldblatt's translations. Um, but I think it's also important, too, to remember that Moyen is only one small thread of Chinese literature. 
that there are also urban writers, there are more avant-garde writers, so he's just one strand of this, and so we shouldn't conflate Moyen with all of Chinese literature. Mm -hmm. And maybe Chris wants to add something. Yeah, yeah. Is, is there anything you would want to add to that? No, I, I, that's a great summary. Of course, I only can read uh, the English translations, but I, I can say that um, we were lucky enough to have the poet Shi uh, Chuan in the program some years ago, and I, I think most people around the world view him as one of the one of the world's really great poets. And uh, I, I feel like he's a poet that uh, I was reading him early this morning, once again. It, the, he inspires me to want to write. Xichuan or Moyen? Xichuan. Yeah. yeah. I, I actually have a story. Before I came to Iowa, when I was still a graduate student, I was doing research in Beijing. And Xichuan and Moyen invited me to a dinner with people from Chinese Central Television. Um, so I went there, and the only two people who would talk to me were Xichuan and Moyen, because the CCTV people only wanted to talk to Moyen and Xichuan because they were these, you know, elevated writers, and I was just a nobody graduate student. And they were so kind to me. And what was really interesting was in the conversation it came out how without Moyen, we may not have the director Zhang Yimo or the actress Gong Li, these very famous luminaries in Chinese cinema, because. Zhang Yimou's first film was Red Sorghum based on Moyen's Red Sorghum family novel. And we, we, had, we had the good luck to have, for several years running, writers who had done movies with uh, Zhang Yimou. Uh, and there was an American uh, consular official uh, who was, would be processing the visas for these writers. And, and when they, this official would see on their uh, CVs that they had done movies with Zhang Yimou, he would say, and do you know Gong Li, the very beautiful actress? And they would always say, oh yes, oh yes. And, they, and he'd say, uh, would, could you introduce me to her? And the writers would always say, oh yes. And they'd get a visa that afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and did they ever introduce? No, no. <laughs> they, left him, they left him wanting more. <laughs> um, so Jennifer, when you think about Chinese literature, I know one of the things that, that was interesting to me last year when we did a program that actually you and your colleague um, were sort of the instigators of. It was a program on global science yeah. fiction, and you mentioned that science fiction is very popular in China. Well, I mean, mainland China is the largest market for science fiction, just because it's the largest market for anything. But, mm -hmm. right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but it's really popular among young people, and the uh -huh. internet is really helping that. And the internet is also helping them to bypass censorship. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, thanks. That, that might be a moment to ask Stephanie to tell us about one of her road trips here to uh, James Kirk's future oh. birthplace. <laughs> Oh yeah, um, as you guys might know, Riverside, which is about, I guess, half an hour's drive from here, it's supposed to be where um, Captain James T. Kirk from Star Trek is going to be born, like, a few centuries from now. <laughs> so um, I, went, I went to visit, and it was fun. <laughs> but Riverside is, is a very small town, which I had never experienced before in the US. So mm -hmm. that was a very interesting experience. Regarding science fiction, well, um, I don't really know if I like it because I'm Chinese. <laughs> yeah, but Singapore is kind of an interesting little country. Some people would say it's very science fiction-like in certain ways. <laughs> so yeah, maybe maybe that's why I like science fiction so much. Unfortunately, I, I don't really read much um, science fiction in Chinese because um, basically I don't read that much in Chinese, even though I am ethnic Chinese myself. 
um, in Singapore, we mainly, um, we mainly speak English and we mainly read English books. So I, I'm much more up to date with all the British and American writers, not so much Chinese writers. Mm -hmm. so, so being here in, in Iowa has been amazing because I've, I've gotten to meet Chunying, I've gotten to meet Chitak from Hong Kong, and it's, it's just been great to kind of be <laughs> considered one of them, considered a Chinese writer, even though I'm kind of like going under. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of like, like getting it just by association. And um, the three of us had a really great trip to um, Nebraska about a month ago where we spoke at two universities, um, including Nebraska Wesleyan. I can see um, Professor James Shea is here. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and we had a great time just like, yeah, talking to students, talking about being Chinese in all these different um, countries, places in the world. Yeah. yeah, so it's, it's just been such a great experience. Oh, I'm glad to hear it, and we'll be able to talk with you later in another segment about your experiences of mm -hmm. Iowa and the Midwest. Um, what more should we say about uh, Chinese literature? What are, what are some names that people might want to look for today in, in translation, of course? I think you can just watch Angie's film, and basically every writer whom she interviews from China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, you know, is one of the big names, you know, in Chinese literature. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, including Mo Yen is in her film. And if you guys haven't seen it, there's going to be an encore screening, I believe, af after this program. And you should yes. all stay and watch it. Um, but, I mean, from the mainland, uh, the fiction writers that she has in her film are Mo Yen, Ge Fei, um, yeah, Li Rei, um, Chi Zijian, Su Tong, Yu Hua. I mean, lots of people from the mainland, from Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Dong Qi Zhang, and we have um, you know Chen Zhide, who's here in the program, and we also have a writer from last year, Xie Xiaohong, who's in the audience from Hong Kong. These are all really brilliant young writers. And then Taiwan, we have him. You know, uh, last year we had a wonderful writer here named Su Wei Zhen. Um, just really, really, there are too many to name. Um, and I think that the wonderful thing about Chinese literature is the diversity. And uh, you can just find everything these days. And unfortunately, not enough has been translated. So I fear that people might be misled to think that all of Chinese literature is set in the past and in the countryside. But that's not true at all, especially if you look at Hong Kong literature or a lot of Taiwanese literature, you see really, really interesting urban stories. Um, so yeah, yeah hopefully we'll have more translated. Well, and, and you, you and Chris both have an interesting vantage point. Um, being professors here at the University of Iowa, you've seen the great increase in numbers of Chinese students studying here on our campus, making friends with um, students from Iowa and other places in the world. And um, uh, there's a growing interest in studying Chinese language here too, isn't there? I believe so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, uh, wonderful. We're going to go next to the film you just spoke about. We're going to be talking with Angie Chen and uh, also with Sun Wei, who will be coming up here. Is there anything more we should say in this segment before we break? Anything further? Well, then thank you, thank you so much. We'll see you later, Lynn, and we'll see you later, Stephanie, and thank you, Jennifer. Thanks. So I would ask uh, Angie to please come up and uh, also Sun Wei. This is World Canvas from International Programs. I'm Joan Kerr and we invite you to join us as a member of the live audience for our next program on uh, December 7th when the topic will be globalization and the world economy. All World Canvas programs are broadcast on UITV, Iowa Public Radio, and KRUI-FM. They can be accessed anywhere in the world through iTunes and the Public Radio Exchange. So just getting settled right now are Angie Chen, Hong Kong filmmaker, who discusses One Tree 
33 Lives, a 2012 feature-length documentary about the life and times of Hualing Angle. Uh, Angie is here with the, the red uh, turtleneck. And um, just next to her is Sun Wei. Very nice to meet you, Wei. And uh, she will be speaking with us a little bit later about her recent arrival here in Iowa City to take part in the International Writing Program. So first, let me go, of course everybody knows Chris Merrill, um, and uh, let me go first to you, Angie. Um, as was mentioned, your film, One Tree, Three Lives, following the title that Walling uh, created for her book, um, your film uh, premiered in Hong Kong, and you recently had a showing at the Landlocked Film Festival here in Iowa City. And tonight, after our program, during the reception, the film will be shown downstairs in the Senate chamber, the same level where we'll have our reception. So if you have a chance, stop in and uh, see as much of the film as you can. But um, tell us about your interest in Hualing. When did you come to the idea to make a film, film about Hualing? Okay, well, first of all, I, I would like to say it's such an honor and a privilege to be here today. Uh, we just flew in, just like Poon, from Hong Kong. I, I now live in Hong Kong. And um, also, uh, we're here to bring uh, this, the film uh, back to Iowa City, where, um, the documentary, One Tree, Three Lives. Um, I would like to say, first of all, about the film and about the person that I know. Uh, we have a very special relationship. Um, I call Huali uh, Nia Angle Nia Ayi. In Chinese, that means Auntie Nia. It's a very kind of affectionate term that we have because the reason being, actually, her daughters and, and me, we were junior high school schoolmates oh. in Taiwan. Did it all the way back in the 60s. So we were teenagers, and I would always go to her home sometimes and, uh, and play with the you know, my two schoolmates. And uh, I always remember her being a very beautiful woman, always dressed in a nice chi pao. And she was always very warm to me. So anyway, back to this, um, the, um, um, and then subsequently, actually, I have to give this background information about this, then I can go into the film. Yes, All right. yes, yes. And then so, but after that, uh, between 1969 and 1973, I came to Iowa City, and I studied here, and I got my BA and my MA degree from the film department, the Communication Studies Department. And then also I was the official Chinese folk song singer for the program. You wouldn't believe it. I only had a handful of songs, one, two, three, four, five. And I would tag along to, uh, you know, uh, they, they would tour America. With a, we would tour America with the writers and with the angles. And um, I would be singing and they would be, um, you know, giving recitals, and I provided the relief, <laughs> the entertainment, so to speak, mm -hmm. yes. So anyway, um, so I went back to Hong Kong, and I'm a filmmaker, as we all know right now, and um, I remember in 2009, I was going through some old papers of mine, I was tidying my study up, and I came across this letter from Paul Engel. I really have forgotten all about it, and he stated in the letter, he said, I approve your proposal of making this a documentary on me. And I remember I asked him, you know, I wrote him, I asked him if I could do a documentary on him, and he said yes. In this very short, very precise, you know, language, and it's scribbly, I don't know if you remember. <laughs> Paul Engels always writes in this really scribbly sort of way. <laughs> so, of course, that letter brought back, you know, me back to memory lane, and I remember all the good old days here. And of course, it was a bit late, I never got it made. Um, 
he passed on in 1991. So when I got that letter, impulsively, I pick up the phone and I rang her up. I rang Hualing Angle up. And I said, hi, Nia Yi. I says, can I do a documentary on you? And in her usual ringing laughter, I think you all probably know her well. And she says, ha, 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 ha. Of course, yes. <laughs> and that actually started this, this documentary. And thank goodness we finished this year. We spent five, uh, three years doing this. We followed her. We came to Iowa City. We, we went, we followed her to Taiwan, um, Hong Kong. And then we also went to Beijing. And we had the good fortune of interviewing a number of the prominent, prominent Chinese writers this, this day. It was really, really uh, my fortune. Um, so anyway, the film, yes, you will have a, a opportunity to view it, uh, I think at 7 p.m. It's, it's going to be showing downstairs again. Um, and um, well, it's a film about Mrs. Angle, one tree, three lives. So you look at each of those three lives, she already talked about the, the three, or I guess Jennifer mentioned the three stages of her life. And uh, so you go way back to the time in China. Yes, yes. It's, it's really a, a biography mm -hmm. of, uh, of Hualing. Yeah, the film is all about her from the day she was in China to now, now, mm -hmm. and she's still in Iowa City. And uh, uh, such a wonderful, she is a woman I think of exceptional courage, I think, and compassion and conviction, mm -hmm. a woman that I know. And I can never forget um, her kindness towards me when I was in Iowa. So I think, um, I just want to say thank you very much, Nia Yi, <laughs> and um, my love to you and my love to every one of you here. <laughs> thank uh, you. I remember actually, uh, I still, I remember this, this, this great line that Mr. Angle used, uh, said. He said, I could not move mountains, but I can make light. And I look at, I look, right now, today, right now, I look across the room and I can see the light that she has made. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Chris, that makes me think of a piece you wrote for the Press Citizen this week. Many of you may have read it, where uh, Chris mentioned uh, the title, I think, was Hospitality, and, and he wove this notion of uh, Welling's warm and welcoming ways into her larger life and the influence she's had here on the world, really. Uh, I was thinking, in, the, in this film, which is really beautiful, and the music is, uh, is quite moving, um, and there's so many bits in it that are... Uh, moving, and then there are funny bits. But there's this little scene uh, toward the end where she, Welling is talking to the great writer Bifei Yu, and they, he, they, he, she mentions that over 600 writers have eaten meals at her dining room table. And then, but and Bifei Yu talks about uh, sitting at the table with her, and and Welling would push some food his way, and when she turned away, he would push it back toward the middle, and then she would push it back. And, and I thought, that's a, a nice image of what Welling does. She just keeps pushing the food toward you. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Very true. Yeah. Uh, well, it, let's uh, bring our next guest into the discussion as well. Um, you are Sunway, and very nice to have you here. Thank you for joining us. 
Thank you. Mm -hmm. It's my uh, honor to be here. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. And I would like to talk with you a little bit about your experience here in Iowa City. And I'll start with asking Chris to describe what the Life of Discovery group is so that he can give you a bit of an introduction. So the Life of Discovery comes out of a, a grant we had from the State Department. Uh, and the notion was to uh, create an exchange with younger Chinese writers. And we, we're just completing our third cycle. Uh, we've been working very closely with the Chinese Writers Association. Uh, Wu Xinwei is somewhere in the audience, ah, way back there. Uh, I've had the good luck to work with her over these years. And the, the notion was to put American and Chinese writers together both in China and here in the United States and have them work together. The life of discovery is a definition of creativity uh, coined by the, uh, the late poet uh, and thinker Brewster Giesland. And uh, we thought, let's see if we can bring writers together to read texts in common, maybe to do some creative writing exercises, to travel uh, in common. And um, uh, they've gone to lots of different parts of China, to uh, Dunhuang, to Kunming, to Shanghai, to Beijing, and, uh, uh, and then come to this country and worked and been a part of the IWP during uh, the fall residency. And the, the idea is to see what sorts of new connections we might be able to create. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, uh, I'll give a, a little of your background. Uh, Sun Wei is a Chinese novelist, a short story writer, and essayist. Born in 1973 in Shanghai, she grew up in a family of intellectuals. Uh, Wei received her BA in journalism from Fudan University in 1996, and her master's in international business administration from Shanghai University of Finance and Economics in 2001. Uh, she started writing fairy tales and novels in her teenage years, and the overarching theme of her her work is the malaise in an increasingly materialistic world with a fickle and fast developing economy in China as the social background. She's published 13 books and over 20 novels and novelettes. So you're a very accomplished writer. Thank you. You've, you've done a lot in a few years. Yeah. yeah. So um, what do you write about? What are the topics you're most interested in writing about? Uh, I mean, as you mentioned, that my topic is the Malays in contemporary China. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, in the last uh, 30 years, um, beginning with a very big change, that suddenly the economy in China developed uh, incredibly rapidly. And it always, me, it always reminded me of the sentence in the novel, A Tale of Two Cities. This is the best of times. This is the worst of times. Yeah. This is the age of wisdom. This is the age of foolishness. Yes. Yeah. Right. I think I'm really lucky that I, I have so many writing material here. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And the people, I mean, uh, the economy developed so quickly, so rapidly, that, um, it, that it is like both Miracle and a disaster happened to people's life. People are like, uh, people are standing on this high-speed train. They try to balance themselves, but they failed. They are too busy to know who they are. Yeah. So I think that actually in 1980s, uh, Hualing Engel came to China, that she, had, she has predicted this this situation. She's very wise. <laughs> oh, mm -hmm. I'm her reader since I was in middle school, and I love her works. 
Also, I love this project. I think this is a legend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see among your own friends, people your own age, uh, do you see uh, the struggle they have in this current economy, uh, working hard, uh, maybe moving from one place to another for a new job? What, what are the, um, the things you see among the people you know that um, help you write what you need to write about China today? Yeah. Yeah. What are, what are the stories that you see around you with yeah. friends and family? Yeah. Uh, actually, I have write a lot, so um, I mean, I can write, but I'm not good at uh, speaking these things. I think, yeah, so I can't speak, so I write. And I think that um, they are face so many, actually it is a very good experiment on human nature, and they are face so many temptations. But meanwhile, they are suffered from the pressure of make a living. Mm -hmm. They comparing with each others, and uh, sometimes they think that the process is not important. Everything should be efficient, and they just very busy to go to that de destination. But they just skip the process of their life. Mm -hmm. All these things we enjoyed here in Iowa City: the music, the literature. All these happy feelings in our life, uh, we accompany, accompany our families, all these things, they skip it. Mm -hmm. They just think it's useless. And I think literature, actually I think literature is a kind of gland in the body of society. Mm -hmm. And they may think that, uh, it, uh, that GDP is very important. It's more important than anything. But I think if we don't have that gland in our body, we will definitely get sick and die. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that, that's probably a feeling that perhaps Angie and, and Chris could say is common um, for people who you know, look at the world from a, a thoughtful perspective here in this country and in, in other places as well. Um, do you, can you respond to the, to the sorts of looking at all the writers you see every year in the residency and some of the themes they work on? Um, is this a common theme? I think that the larger theme would be uh, trying to find meaning in uh, contemporary existence and uh, we have writers from so many different cultures, so many different societies. In China, maybe trying to find meaning in the midst of a rapidly uh, uh, growing economy is different than, uh, I'm thinking of my friend from Zimbabwe who's uh, written a play while he was here uh, uh, addressing a different, different kinds of matters. It has to do more with freedom and freedom of expression. And our writers from the Arab world who are responding in one way or another to the Arab uprising of the last uh, couple of years. In each case, the writers are in some fashion trying to discover meaning uh, about their experiences here, whether they are experiences they've had or that they are imagining. And uh, uh, I, I think what's, what's interesting is to see the writers in conversation with each other about the, uh, uh, the, the different things that they're facing. You mentioned our writer from Afghanistan. Uh, 
uh, Mohib Zagam, who is also, as it happens, a cardiologist. For some reason, we often have a doctor in the house, and uh, uh, I think that's very useful. You should always have a, a doctor around writers because you never know what's going to happen. Um, but uh, I, I remember one event. Uh, Mohib suddenly started talking from the perspective of a doctor, uh, how a doctor would diagnose uh, uh, a, 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 a patient, and. And I thought, oh, that's just, a, it's a different way that uh, he's got a different angle of vision. And I thought that's really at the heart of what the IWP is. Mm -hmm. We just bring one different angle of vision. And we're, we're all trying to, a friend of mine once said about writers, he said, you know, we're all just cannon fodder. I mean, we're all mm -hmm. trying to write something that will last. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, who knows which pieces will last. Yeah. But um, the, uh, the, the common activity of trying to make sense with words uh, mm -hmm. uh, is what, is what fuels us. Yeah. And uh, Angie, you're trying to make sense with words through film, huh? Mm, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, we all, I think we're all trying to make sense of what's well, the meaning of life with life, I think, right? Mm -hmm. um, your question? Is your work exclusively in documentary? Um, that's very, no, not, absolutely not. I mean, I think that kind of reflects what Chris and, and uh, the certain way is saying is that I think we all, um, for me, I think life is, is, the meaning of life maybe, is that it's full of challenges. And, um, and for me personally, I think it's the passion that you feel for what you do is the most important thing. Whether you're a writer or you're a filmmaker or you're, or you're a repairman and anything, as long as you have passion and you have respect for the kind of work you do, mm -hmm. I think and that, that makes it meaningful. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. the meaning. Well, please uh, thank Angie Chen and Sun Wei for joining us this evening. Thank you. And, and uh, now I'd like to invite Ed Folsom to join us. Uh, uh, he is going to sit with Chris here for a minute and talk about some of the very, very interesting uh, international and interactive uh, things that the IWP, International Writing Program, is doing. Hi, Ed. Um, Ed Folsom is Carver Professor of American Literature in the Department of English at the University of Iowa. He's an internationally renowned scholar of Walt Whitman's work and Whitman's relationship to various elements of American culture, including photography, dictionaries, and baseball. Great to have you with us here, Ed, and uh, I'm sure it'll be fun to hear about, about all this Whitman work. And I'd like to first uh, go to a brief discussion of something called Book Wings that I, I think you, Chris, can tell us about. Well, we, as, as I said, we try, to do, we, we try to do some other kinds of projects. And a few years ago, uh, I was in Moscow for uh, the a bilateral presidential commission on, to reset relations between the United States and, and Russia. And the director of the Moscow Art Theater jumped up in the middle of a meeting and he said, we've trained a thousand American actors in the Stanislavski method over the last 20 years and now I can talk to my, my daughter every night by Skype in Boston. Can't we figure out some way to do something together? And I seized on this idea. I thought we would figure something out and what we did was we commissioned four young writers, uh, four young Russian writers and four young American writers to create, to write new pieces on the theme of contact. And then we got uh, Alan McVeigh and his colleagues in our theater department uh, to work, uh, to stage these plays. So on a single day, we, we staged these four plays in Iowa City at 10 o'clock in the morning. 
and in Moscow at 8 o'clock at night, and we did it over the internet, and we went back and forth uh, talking with the actors and the directors in Moscow and in Iowa City. So it worked out, it worked out beautifully. And then the State Department said, um, okay, that was fun. Uh, what do you think about trying to do that with Chinese playwrights and actors? And so we, we thought, well, that sounds, that's, that sounds interesting. It will present different kinds of challenges. And uh, one thing led to another, and next March we will uh, we'll have three American playwrights and three Chinese playwrights put on a, a, a show again, early in the morning here or late at night here, I'm not sure which it is, uh, and, and you know, simultaneously. On the Internet 2 platform, we'll have actors doing each other's plays, uh, talking back and forth, and it, as it happens in that same week, we'll, be, uh, we'll use three other American playwrights and three Russian playwrights. So we're going to have a, a, a festival of, uh, of uh, people working in Shanghai and Moscow and Iowa City, uh, just trying to see what can be done in common. Writing on a theme, working up a play, turning it into something to stage, hoping the internet connection lasts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so I mean, why is that especially fun for writers? Why do writers need to be around other writers? Well, writers are usually in their rooms, and, and actually, uh, uh, the writers this year did something really very clever. They've just made a website called uh, 26 Rooms, where uh, you, can, you can go on to the web and see uh, uh, what, what's inside each of the rooms of the different writers here. It's just that you, all you can see is, is the room number. You don't know who the writers are, unless, as uh, one writer noticed today, we, we, all have the, we all have the list of where the writers have been staying, but you get a glimpse into their solitary lives. But also, writers at the end of the day are also often social creatures. Mm -hmm. They want to get out and do something and uh, see what might happen in conversation with another writer. And uh, so that aspect of collaboration mm -hmm. has been a part of a part of what we do. And it's you know it it can be fun. It can be an experiment. It can go nowhere. But uh, occasionally, it sparks something really interesting. Yeah. No. Um, well, uh, Ed. You've been the organizer and the lead scholar of a number of Whitman symposia around the world, conferences, various meetings of one kind or another. And I guess you directed one in Beijing in 2000, uh, and your book, Whitman East and West, gathers together some of the thoughts of the uh, scholars who participated in that, in that uh, uh, conversation in Beijing. Uh, tell us why people around the world are interested in Whitman. Whitman has uh, uh, had a, an amazing life in many different cultures. And one of the things that I think attracts um, uh, readers internationally is that Whitman uh, lends himself to uh, uh, cultural translation. That is, he, he becomes a, a quite different figure in different cultures. In India, for instance, uh, Whitman is often read as uh, a Western yoga master. And uh, you will uh, find books um, that read Whitman's Song of Myself as uh, yoga discipline, Western yoga discipline, with titles like Maha Yoga Walt Whitman. <laughs> and uh, uh, in, in Germany, when uh, uh, we went through the period of East and West Germany, two very different Whitmans developed in those two different cultures. Um, he was translated differently. Uh, he was uh, seen very much as a proto-socialist in the uh, uh, 
uh, Eastern German perspective and in the Western German perspective very much as um, uh, uh, the spokesperson for uh, a kind of uh, developing uh, liberal democracy. Um, and we can go around the world and Whitman seems to be absorbed in different ways by different cultures. Um, I, I had a, a seminar here last year where I brought in uh, translators from six different countries to um, uh, deal with uh, translations of Whitman. And we looked at single Whitman poems, short Whitman poems, and gathered all the translations uh, of those particular poems in all of the languages that were represented. So we were looking in some cases at maybe 50 or 60 translations in different languages of a single Whitman poem. And one of the things we discovered in reading those translations is how much Native American uh, speakers, Native English speakers in America, can learn about their own language and their own poetry by coming at it through the translations of 50 translators who have tried to put that poem into another language and into another culture. Um, as we would back translate those poems into English, we could begin to see that many of the translators solved most of the problems of the poem in very similar ways. But there were always three or four places in every poem that the translators disagreed radically about how to translate that particular image, that particular word, that particular turn in the poem. And in every case, those places, those problematic little nodes in the poem, uh, when we looked at the poem again in English, may have been places that we read right over but we could almost immediately see that in fact one of the great ambiguities in the language was right there. And that the poems began to open up in ways that uh, those of us uh, who were native English speakers had never seen before. We all felt that we understood the poems in ways that we would have never understood it had we not come at them through 50 different translators trying to put it into another language. So translation is not just moving from one language to another, but it also has a tremendous power to teach native speakers about their own language because every translation, we always say this, every translation is an interpretation. And only when you really sit down with all those translations of a single poem do you realize how true that is and how those interpretations can really help you understand your own poetry and your own language. Mm -hmm. Well, for, for those of us here in the States, and many who may not have read much Whitman since the days they were in school, why is the poetry of Walt Whitman, in your, in your view, um, uh, so how definitive in terms of uh, the American spirit or a period in our, in our history? What is it about Whitman that is real today? Well, that's, uh, uh, that's a big question, and there, there are, I think, huge answers to that question. Uh, 
But certainly one, one thing that I think is intriguing to uh, readers of Whitman in all languages is that he's trying to create a voice, uh, construct uh, the I, um, that is speaking a truly democratic language. And by that, I don't mean uh, a political language or a governmental language of any sort, not democracy as a structure of government and polity, but rather democracy as a way of thinking and a way of interacting with everyone in the culture. Uh, it's a radical kind of thinking. And Whitman was trying to construct an eye that was open and absorptive uh, of all the things around him, an indiscriminate eye, a non-discriminating, but even beyond non-discriminating, indiscriminate eye, one that would take in everything in the culture. How radical could, uh, 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 could, could a self be that opened itself to every idea in a culture? to every version of diversity in a culture. What would that self be like that was as open as a self could possibly be and yet maintain some sort of individuality? I think that's a, a, a fascinating uh, problem that Whitman was developing. He certainly knew in his own life that he himself had all kinds of biases and discriminations, but he was trying to invent a voice and project a voice that went beyond that. Imagine a voice that someday, he believed, might be the voice that we all shared, a voice that opened itself entirely to a diverse and complex world, and instead of shutting itself off to parts of that world, opened itself up to it all. Uh, earlier when I was introducing you, I mentioned uh, something that I found in uh, a bio of yours, um, that Whitman had, um, Whitman and photography have a relationship. Also baseball, we can't really leave this segment without talking a little bit about those two things. Yeah, well Whitman, Whitman and for, for Walt Whitman, who uh, photography, began more or less in 1839 in America uh, as uh, uh, the, the, the world very quickly in the 1840s became a photographed world for the first time. And Whitman was a young man when this occurred and he took immediately to photography and began to think about photography as the truly democratic art form. Uh, he, he believed that uh, the camera had given uh, uh, humans access to uh, an image, a representation of the world that was truly democratic in the sense that it did not discriminate. Whatever the sun shined on made its way into the photographic field. And so for Whitman, a photographic plate was the ultimate democratic imagination. You opened it to a world, and everything had its place in that world. So where many people at the beginning uh, of, of photography uh, really disliked the medium and saw it as something that might help artists uh, create better canvases, Whitman said, no, no. 
photographers are going to be the democratic artists because um, what photography does that painting does not do is it gives everything its place. And we redefine beauty. Beauty is not editing out the ugly or the unpleasant. Beauty is allowing everything that before we had thought of as extraneous, as, as, as debased, everything has its place. And beauty now is no longer editing things out. Beauty is understood as fullness, uh, completion. And photography was teaching us how to be full and complete. I think in a lot of ways Whitman, in his own poetry, was trying to invent uh, a linguistic form, a, a form of words that was as open to the world as a photographic plate was open to the things of the world. And so what's the connection with baseball? Well, the baseball, uh, uh, Whitman, Whitman was our, our first writer to, um, to recognize baseball as the national sport. Uh, uh, very early on, uh, again, Whitman was uh, uh, in the middle of, uh, of the invention of baseball and the development of baseball in uh, New York and New Jersey. And uh, uh, some of the earliest baseball teams were made up of friends of Whitman's in Brooklyn. Um, and as baseball developed, uh, Whitman said, you know, this has, his words were the snap, go, and fling of the American character. Uh, it, was, um, it was the America's game, and he followed it uh, his whole life. Uh, one of the things I think Whitman really admired about uh, uh, baseball was that baseball players, when they were on the baseball field, had a kind of uh, ease with each other. Uh, it was the only place you could see uh, uh, males uh, uh, interact with each other in physical ways. Uh, they'd pat each other on the rear end uh, when they'd uh, come around, and people didn't think it was strange. Uh, they just thought it was the way baseball was played. And so <laughs> that camaraderie that Whitman sensed in the, on the field of baseball was something that he, again, imagined uh, uh, eventually would carry over into the American character more generally. Um, he always felt that, uh, that the English language, uh, as, as vast and as uh, uh, open as it was to bringing in words, diction from other languages, that it was remarkably uh, sparse in its words for affectional relationships between people. We had the word friend and we had the word lover, but those million gradations in between were unnamed. And so Whitman was always looking all over the culture for places that might name those nameless relationships on which um, uh, human interaction is based. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the reasons we wanted to talk about Whitman on this program is that you are working together to create something called the Whitman Web. Uh, so, Chris, maybe you can give us a sort of a general idea of what this is. Well, I think the idea began with uh, Ed doing a, a seminar for the IWP writer some years ago, which in which he had collected all the photographs of Whitman, who was, I think, one of the most 
photographed figures of the 19th century and, and took us through them. So I, I, I have a feeling the seed got planted there. And then we were invited to uh, come up with some kind of an idea about uh, uh, some literary idea that we could do on the web. And I had this brainstorm that if we spent a year um, uh, looking at the, uh, his great poem, Song of Myself, which happens to be in 52 parts, I thought, what if we have, we issue a, a part every week um, with a commentary by Ed, uh, an introduction by Ed, and an afterword by me, and used all these photographs, and then did it in, in as many translations as we could get. And uh, that's how we began to create the Whitman Web. So uh, we just released the second section uh, today, uh, thanks to Natasha Duravicheva and her team of Lauren Haldeman and uh, Matt Arendt and Mode Akwe. They have created in incredible short, short time uh, a website that has the poems in the original English, but also in Russian translation, Chinese, um, Portuguese, uh, the first translation ever into Persian, what, Ukrainian, Spanish, German, French, and just last week in Baghdad, we, uh, in Russian, and, and last week in Baghdad, we tracked down a, a copy of a, an Arabic translation, so when we, when we release Whitman Web 2.0, we will have, uh, we'll have it in Arabic, and we're getting the, tr the comments, uh, the commentaries translated into Russian, uh, Persian and soon into uh, and into Chinese and, and Arabic. So the idea is to have a have a conversation over the course of the year. We got Eric Forsyth to record the most beautiful. Uh, you know, he's, he's recorded the whole of the poem. It's extremely beautiful, and the, the Persian translator is also recording it in uh, in Persian. And so it's a it's a big website with uh, lots of interesting things going on. And if you want to get to it, you really, really should, uh, if, if for no other reason than to listen to the first two sections of Song of Myself in Persian. Yeah. It is a, a, an experience for the ears that your ears will not forget. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, all you need to do is go on to Google and type in IWP, for International Writing Program, type in IWP Whitman, and the first thing that will pop up is a story about why we're doing this project, and the second thing will be the project itself. And you can click on it, and uh, over the next year, uh, take 15 minutes a week and uh, read another section of Song of Myself and, uh, and listen, to, uh, listen to it in both English with Eric Forsyth's amazing reading of it, and uh, also in Persian, um, and uh, any other languages you happen to know and want to see what it looks like and read what the poem sounds like. We have translations from early 20th century to absolutely contemporary represented on that, that website. Um, so it's, it's a feast for the eyes and the ears. And so all 52 weeks as the year goes along, we'll, they'll all be available. You don't, if, if you miss it one week, you can go back and can find back it later. And, yeah. yeah, great. And, but you can't go, you can, you can only go farther ahead <laughs> to read the poem, but you, the commentaries are still being written. And uh, yeah. some are writing them faster than others. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow, well, thank you for sharing that. That sounds fantastic, and, uh, and I appreciate it. And thank you, Ed, for telling us uh, something about your work with Whitman. And thank you, Chris, for being up here with me all this time. Thanks so much.
So now, in these last few minutes, we're going to talk to four of the writers who have been here during these last 10 weeks, um, IWP writers, and uh, Stephanie, let's see, Stephanie, please come, and uh, Lin Chan Ying, uh, Rodrigo Lopez, hello, and uh, also Alina Dadaeva. Hello, Alina, nice to meet you. Um, so with these uh, folks, we're just going to talk casually about what the experience of being in the International Writing Program, coming to a place called Iowa, what that has meant to them, to their writing. And um, I think that I will start first. Well, you've met Stephanie here in the black dress. You've met Lin Chan Ying. Uh, and at the far end, we have Alina Dadaeva. And she's a poet and fiction writer from Uzbekistan who's worked widely as a reporter and a correspondent. Her poetry has appeared in many literary publications, and her first collection of poetry was published in 2010. So thank you for being with us tonight. And next to me is Rodrigo Lopez, a poet and translator from Brazil. Rodrigo has published five collections of poetry, and his work has been widely published and anthologized. His second CD, called Songs from Reality Studio, a new book of poems, and a first novel are coming yet this year. Rodrigo translates from the English. He translates Whitman, Laura Riding, and Sylvia Plath, and from the French, Rimbaud and Apollinaire. Uh, he co-edits the arts magazine Coyote and performs his poems and songs regularly around Brazil. So let's start with you, Alina. Uh, what has your experience been like here in Iowa? Was it what you expected? I remember that uh, the day when I found out that I was... Um, okay, nice. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, I got the possibility to go to Iowa City and to... Um, uh, to be here in IWP program, I found one of my best friends and I told him, I'm waiting for your congratulations, I'm going to the city of literature to be here for three months. And he told, yeah, okay, and I'm going to the moon to be there forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's why it's really difficult for people. A lot of people know about this program now, thanks to IWP, but millions of people in the world, they won't be able to believe that such kind of thing exists because it's really difficult. Uh, our world is uh, so focused on such kind of things as business, money, politics, that it, many people can believe that somewhere there is the city of literature where almost all the writers live, uh, where literature is the first thing to think about, where there are so many literary readings, literary meetings, and that's really happiness that you, all of you, they, that you live there, here, and you, our guys, uh, have the possibility to attend this. That's why thank you for this happiness that you shared with us. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, we're happy that you are here. And, and what city are you from? Me? Yeah. I'm from Tashkent, it's the capital of Uzbekistan. That's really big city, but you know, uh, when I try to compare our Tashkent and Iowa City, it seems that Iowa City is bigger for me because uh, there are so many places where I want to attend. That uh, territory, the distance means nothing. Uh, the more places, the more people you want to meet, uh, the bigger city is for you. <laughs> yeah, ah, wonderful. Well, well, let me ask Rodrigo for your impressions of this experience as well. Yes, <clears throat> uh, first of all, uh, I'd like to begin my participation with a, a quote by Ezra Pound, who was a very important American poet for me, for my formation. And he, he says something that we have to think of every time. Um, if a nation's literature declines, the nation atrophies and decays. 
A nation which neglects the perceptions of its artists declines, after which it ceases to act and merely survive. <clears throat> so Whitman, uh, Pound's uh, <laughs> phrase is very important for me in a way that <clears throat> a country that doesn't value its own writers is a country that is neglecting <clears throat> language. And language, I believe, that's our common house, our common home. So that's why I believe that we are here for a very important uh, uh, thing. And literature is not only something that happens in books. I have to remind that uh, literature is always between, be it between pages, between people, between different uh, oral experiences like uh, life experiences. And it's important to mention a phrase that Paulo Leminski, is a, uh, he's a Brazilian poet, he, he says that poetry is useless or poetry is, poetry is a unutensil in a sense that in a, in a society where everything has a, a price, everything is a commodity, maybe poetry is a kind of uh, ecological reserve, uh, reservation in a sense that is the place where language is really being taken care of. And I can only say that uh, we should, uh, we have so much to learn, we Brazilians, with what happens here, for instance, with this kind of program. Uh, initiatives like this, like 45 years, a program like this. And I was, before coming here, I went to check out the, who were the Brazilians who were here before, like since 60 something. And I was amazed to find like five or six of our best contemporary Brazilian writers on that list. So okay, okay, that's a good omen maybe. <laughs> I will one day be, and these guys would be like people like uh, Bernardo Carvalho, uh, João Baldo Ribeiro, uh, João Gilberto Nol, Luiz Vilela, and Amilcar Bettega, who are among uh, the best Brazilian, contemporary Brazilian writers. So i just like to, to tell uh, there is a, a carnival march in, in, in Brazil that is, goes like this. Ai, 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 I guess time is coming. Day is breaking, sweetheart, and I have to go away. <laughs> oh, well, sorry you'll be leaving, because this, I think, is the last week for your yes. residency yeah. here in Iowa City. Oh, thank you. Um, Stephanie, what, what, has your, uh, what do you think about this experience now that you've been here for these many weeks? Um, yeah, Iowa has just been such an eye-opening experience for me. Um, it's, it's thanks to the IWP that I had my first encounter with, with the Republican. <laughs> um, it wasn't in Iowa City, actually. Um, for our mid-residency trip, we went to, um, some of us went to New Orleans. So I was there in this jazz bar called The Spotted Cat, you know, and this like, handsome, tall, blonde guy comes up to me and he starts talking to me. And it turns out he's from Mississippi. Yeah, so, you know, we're having a nice chat and then he, like, asked me where I'm from, etc. And then he asked, um, oh, you know, so what's, you know, what do people outside of the U.S. think of Obama? And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, we love him so much. You know, he's so great. We all wish you were our president. And then I realized that his face was like, <laughs> you know, and then I was like, oh, right, 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 he's a southerner, he's, he's probably like, you know, a Republican. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> so, but I mean, he was very polite being, being southern, you know, he was, he, he was just so, you know, very nice to me still, and we continued to have a pleasant conversation. 
But anyway, um, I don't know if this will ever come up in my writing. Like, I don't know if I'll ever be able to use this, but I think that kind of represents to me how the IWP has really shown me another side of the US. Um, this is not my first time in the US. I did my undergraduate um, degree here in the Midwest, actually, at the University of Chicago on the south side of the city in Hyde Park, otherwise known as Obama land. <laughs> so, yeah, so I guess even though I have experience in the US, I've always been in this kind of little urban liberal bubble. And just coming to Iowa City, even though Iowa is very liberal as well, the, the program has made an effort for to bring all of us to like different parts, like to have a different experience of the US than what most of us would get just visiting the big cities. Like one of the most memorable trips um, that we took was to a rodeo. It was a rodeo um, somewhere in, like elsewhere in Iowa. And that was, that was truly something special, I think, for all of us, like just seeing how patriotic. <laughs> I mean, you know, like, you know, like there was, they played the, um, the Star Spangled Banner and then like to coordinate with like the last notes, they had this skydiver come down, like, you know, and land in the middle of the rodeo arena with a huge American flag. And <laughs> I mean, that was, that was a pretty interesting look at a different part of, of the US, like, like a different kind of culture than what we're usually exposed to. So to be honest, I don't know if I will actually explicitly refer to my time in Iowa in my writing, but I do think that just opening my mind up to a different experience here in Iowa, like that will really, that can only enrich my writing, I think. It just broadens your mind and it forces you to, to think of things which otherwise you might not even want to think about, just because it is so easy to just stay stuck in your, in your little bubble and just associate with things that you're, you're comfortable with, that you're used to, that you like. So mm -hmm. I think for me, that's, that's the real gift of the IWP, just taking, like, taking us all to these different like, yeah. experiences. Yeah, oh, thank you, Stephanie. And Lynn, um, what would you have to say about your time here? Okay, sure, because I got a question a few days ago, so I wrote it down. <laughs> <laughs> I think it will be you know, more organized and clear. Uh, I always thought that uh, writers are independent. Every writer is like an island, because when he or she is writing, he is complete on his own. But uh, I think the IWT has given me a different point of view about it. I never expected to meet or know so many writers from uh, different countries with different language. I think it's like a universe. Oh, uh, it's my opinion. The, like the public of literature or the public of writer. Uh, this year we have I know, uh, 31 writers from 28 countries and to me every writer has inspired me in some way, even the way they are smoking, drinking, <laughs> or joking. <laughs> I cannot you know, just describe it with my words, but uh, all in all the IWTP has made me feel it's a pride to be a writer and uh, I have made a right and a great choice for my life. Mm -hmm. And uh, I cannot say uh, how or how much the IWP will affect my writing in the future, but uh, it's too early to say it. But I remember Mr. Paul Enger's poet, 
I cannot move the mountain, but I can light. <laughs> and I think exactly the ITPP has enlightened me. And uh, thank you very much. I am so grateful to everyone in the IWP office and uh, so many people in the Iowa City and most of all, I'm so grateful to uh, Mrs. Uh, Anger. I always call her uh, teacher Nie, Nie Lao Shi. I cannot just call her name. So <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Nie Lao Shi. <laughs> We have a few minutes uh, here at the end of, of the program. I don't know if any of you brought anything to read from your own, from your own work, but I did ask uh, Rodrigo if he had something he could share. I think even something you've written while you were here. Yeah. Um, I'd just like to say some few words It what you were talking about, feeling proud, because uh, it's, uh, I feel like that I'm more valued as a poet outside Brazil than than in Brazil sometimes. And I really would like to say how important this program is and what experience this has been. Although very short, I was a latecomer here, but I really appreciated uh, getting to hear and getting to know more. I will write a poem, and I won't tell the truth that I wrote this poem here, but it's very similar to a situation. This is called Written in a Hotel, but I, I put the title of Written in Iowa House Hotel which is where everybody's staying but me. Uh, what makes us write if even while time, the mind's writing denies that it's there to entertain until time closes, until light abrides? The first gesture that detonates it is the echo of the word that devours it. Bones and stuffing on exhibit as it comes of its own impulse, the master. It is to confuse the registers. A light in a room announces itself, and to become even more lucid, a distracted hand, a distracted hand writes us and stops. <laughs> thank, thank you. you. Thank Um, have you been writing while you were here, Alina? You know, as one of my friends who is a photographer says, uh, one day we were in the mountains and he, we went there uh, to him make photos. He is, ever, he is very fond of photos and we have been spent in the mountains maybe five hours and he didn't done any of his photos. And one, uh, in five hours I asked him, why are you not shooting anything? And he told, what? I'm shooting. Now I just should put the bottom and everything is ready. So he, he talked about his absorbing, that absorbing is much more than writing. Of course, I have written here, maybe not so much as I expected, but I don't know, it's not because of, um, I had an inspiration here, but as soon as I come to Tashkent back, I will do everything and maybe <laughs> much more uh, better than I do here, cause uh, here it's time to, make impressions, to yes. get them, to inspire maybe for writing them. Mm -hmm. And maybe as the last word, I wanna read a small, a small piece of a poem of a great Russian poet, Sergei Yesenian. It's about last farewell, and he told that there is one day when we meet together. 
Он ее смол пес. До свидания, друг мой, до свидания. Милый мой, ты у меня в груди. Предназначенное расставание обещает встречу впереди. Спасибо. Thank you. Thank you. Well, um, and do you have something you'd like to say, Stephanie? Yeah. This this um, dance company in New York City called Battery Dance Company. They'll basically be performing. Uh, they'll basically be performing dances inspired by our pieces on Veterans Day um, at Ellis Island, which I'm sure most of you know is where um, the ancestors of more than half of Americans passed through Ellis Island when they were immigrating into here. And I, I thought the commission was quite weird, given that the very fact that we're all international writers means that none of us have ancestors who passed through at this island. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, what, um, the title of my poem is called The Stars. And like something like, I was a little bit inspired by Iowa City because where I come from in Singapore, um, this, Singapore's a really big city. It's a small country, but a big city. But um, yeah, so we get a lot of light pollution. So if you look up at the sky, um, you don't really see that many stars. But here in Iowa City, um, yeah, you know, when you're stumbling home from the pub, from the Fox Head, um, <laughs> yeah, and you look up at the sky, you actually see like, you know, all these beautiful constellations. So like that's an image of Iowa City that will always stay with me. And that is partly what inspired this poem, which I've written called The Stars. There are stars whose light we will never see, they say, because the universe is constantly expanding, the stars racing to all the infinite corners of infinite space, their light, too slow to ever make up the growing distance from our gaze. This is why the stars shine lonely in the dark night sky, rather than merge in their multitudes in a seamless sweep of light. And this is what you tell your children when they ask about the gaps in the family story. We are all moving so fast and so ceaselessly. Names, creeds, customs dropping away like so many light years as we blaze our irrevocable trails into the unknown. But at each of our cores burns the same strange, mad matter. And though we might die never seeing the light from one another, maybe someday, somewhere, Someone else will watch the night sky and see us all, our starlight forming our own constellation. Thank you. Mm. Wow, well, thank you. Beautiful way to end our program. Um, we've been joined here by Alina Dadaeva, uh, by Lin Chun Ying, by Stephanie Ye and by Rodrigo Lopez. Thank you. Uh, we have come to the end of our program, and I'd like to say thanks to everyone who was with us this evening. Special appreciation going to International Impact Award winner Hualing Nia Engel, Christopher Merrill, and the wonderful staff of the IWP, as well as former President Sandy Boyd. Um, thank you all for coming here. And uh, World Canvas is a production of international programs at the University of Iowa. Our partners are UITV, the UI Pentecrest Museums, KRUI, and Information Technology Services. And you can catch this program on uh, UITV all around the state and on iTunes in our podcast series. So please join us in this room on December 7th at 5 o'clock. And uh, that program will be on globalization and the world economy. Thanks to my production colleagues in international programs, Caitlin McBride, Amy Green, Connie Shea, Shana Oli, and Christopher Clough, and to the UITV technical team, which makes these broadcasts possible. That's it for tonight. I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you so much and join us in the reception.